You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Good morning, WCC. I hope you are well this morning. So, hey, I want to do something different today, if it's all right with you. Uh, I think given the current moment we're in, I'd like to, I don't know, I'd like to do a teaching rather than, you know, kind of a sermon, uh, which means this one may be a little longer than normal, longer than 20 minutes, which has probably spoiled all of us. I really enjoy offering a message that's, you know, somewhere between 18 and 23 minutes. It, I feel like I've, I finally figured that out. <laughs> it just took me 20 years. Um, but today I want to do something different. I want to do a teaching. I think for us, it's time to really start thinking critically. Um, it has been time, and, and I think we've talked about this for years here, but I want to take time to really think critically about how our faith intersects um, our politics. Now, don't trigger on me, right? Like, don't, don't set off. Uh, I think you'll see where we're going, so stick with it. And I want to create space in Theology Thursday for us to have a meaningful conversation. If you can't make it, then what I'm thinking about doing, uh, and it's up to you, obviously, uh, we could probably get together and have just an hour and a half or so of meaningful conversation as to how this fleshes out in deeper ways in Scripture. But I think it's a misnomer, and I think, I think most people would agree, I think most of you would agree that our faith and our politics do get tethered sometimes. Um, whether it's the preacher standing in the pulpit talking about pro-life matters, our sanctity of marriage matters, all things that we say are biblical moral issues, but really became very party political um, around in the 80s. And so I think, I think it would be a bit disingenuous for any of us to think that somehow we've been skating above the uh, waters of politics in our last 50 years in American Christianity. So what I'm not gonna do is talk about party politics because for those of you who know me well, you know that is not my concern. Um, what I want to do is talk about the politics of Jesus, because Jesus is not apolitical, not even close. Uh, he is deeply political. Just the language of kingdom in the midst of Rome, proclaiming that God's kingdom has come. Notice Jesus didn't say God's church or God's people. He used political language in his gospel, but he preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He talked about a kingdom already existing in a nation state within another nation state that was Israel, albeit they were under um, captivity, so to speak. At, the, at best, they were occupied by Rome. Rome was whirling the world. Jesus talked about kingdom. So let's not think for one second that the language of Scripture lets us off the hook. Jesus had his own politics. And so let me explain what I mean when I say politic. Our politics. Okay, by politic, I mean the ancient Greek word, politikos, with its root meaning found in the Greek word polis, right? Which literally meant state or community as a whole. So bear with me like for like 30 seconds. According to Plato and Aristotle, who seem to be the first people to use the word when speaking of communities of people, the concept of polis or politikos was an ideal state where society would function at its best for all people. So the simple definition of politic I want to offer 
you and me in this conversation a definition that I believe honors its root word and original intent is this, the rule by which a people live an orderly life. Okay, it's a sense of governance. It's what governs our life together. So Jesus has his own politics and they cannot be twisted to serve the interests of any other political agenda. Jesus as the king of God's kingdom which itself is a governing reality to which all of us have pledged our allegiance, has decreed a different kind of politics, a different kind of rule by which his citizens should live an orderly life. See, so that's what I mean. So the kingdom of God decrees a rule by which we live an orderly life. That, by definition, is politics. And I believe that Jesus' politics are most comprehensively found in his sermon on the mount. Jesus's politics and ethics offer a way of living that grounded in the truth of heaven as revealed in him and the life he lived can bring about meaningful, redemptive change in the world beginning in us. See, the politics of the Sermon on the Mount runs contrary to all nations' political interests of an economic and military superpower. Even in our nation's political systems, a different way of thinking is at work. And this different way of thinking that's at work in our nation's political system reduces Christian to an adjective placed in submission to a greater pronoun of left or right. So we have the so-called Christian left and the so-called Christian right. And so what we forget is that Christian isn't an adjective to be placed in submission to a pronoun, much less a, a pronoun that supports an ideology that upholds an ethic that inevitably runs contrary to the ethics of God's kingdom. Christian is an ancient description of a people who follow Christ. But see, here's perhaps the hardest thing for us to remember. Jesus did not call his disciples to enforce his politics and ethics. He called his disciples to embody them. See, in the politics of Jesus, the world will be changed by a different kind of power, one of self-giving love, a non-coercive love. It's, it's not the task of the church to change society by legislative force or coercive power demonstrated through a rage-filled culture war. It's the task of the church to be the society already being changed by Christ, to become a community of truth that embodies the politics of Jesus by practicing self-giving love that engages with the world through faithful presence, humble rhetoric, and if need be, courageous martyrdom, never by coercive force. This is why Jesus says these words when giving his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Not force it, make it. Let it so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So here's the takeaway for us. The church is its own reality and politic, living in another reality and politic. And that other reality and politic is what the scriptures refer to as the reign of sin and death, or Babylon, or the world, or more specifically and concretely, the United States of America. 
And when this reality and politic presses into our lives, it can feel more real than the reality and politic of God's kingdom. So as a consequence, we knowingly or unknowingly end up giving it more authority over our lives because its realness feels more real. What I want to say is that both realities and politics are real. We live as Christians in the USA with all that entails. So that affects our lives in terms of the economy, healthcare, policies, opportunities. These are all real things, felt real things. And the reign of sin and death makes sure that we see and feel these things when sickness, oppression, inequality, inequity, injustice, exclusion, division, coercion, violence, and anxieties crash into our lives. And it's realness is why the Bible has to speak over 2,000 times about the marginalized neighbors within and surrounding Israel, the poor, widow, orphan, and immigrant, and how God's people must tend to them in tangible, practical ways. 2,000 times, y'all. So it's real. But you and I, and this church, and the church universal, has a choice to make. The church must, must consciously, say consciously, the church must consciously choose which reality and politic it will give the most authority to. We must consciously choose to remain faithful to God's preferred reality and politic while living in another reality and politic we call the United States of America. And to do this, it consciously must be willing to do the soul work individually. It's me, and collectively, that's us, to make sure our beliefs ethics and practices reflect the reality and politics of God's kingdom in the midst of the reality and politics we find ourselves in in the USA. Again, both realities and politics are real, but there is a distinct difference between the two. One can redeem and one cannot. See, earthly governments are not meant to redeem the world. They are meant to enact forms of justice in the world in order to preserve it. That's what I believe the scriptures teach about earthly governments. That they are, they are preservative institutions, are preservational institutions, not redemptive. And these same governments that are meant to bring preservation to the world, to keep it from running off the rails, can also perform acts of injustice and even move it closer to off the rails. And so quoting Jesus, the church is called to do actions of justice, mercy, and faithfulness out of love for our neighbors. See Matthew 23, 23, and then Matthew 22, 37, 38 to see what I'm saying there. See, only the kingdom of God has the power to redeem by changing hearts changing the hearts of the people and the kind of society that those people build. Only the kingdom of God has the power to bring shalom, God's well-being and flourishing for all. Therefore, when we think about how both realities and politics are real, we have to remember that only one can redeem and the other cannot. Only one reality and politic can make peace, and at best, only one can keep peace. Only one reality and politic can lean into love and generosity as its dominating ethic. <laughs> dominating, right? And one leans into violence and coercion as is. Only one reality and politic lasts forever. And see, I think this is why Peter wrote his first pastoral letter to the Christians living under the tyrannical reign of Nero in Rome, which we looked at last week. 
and he says this. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17. Now, I wish we could just take time and really unpack this text, but I'm going to catch the broad, the broad purpose of this text, and we're going to keep going. But he says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had, received, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now listen to this, brothers and sisters. He goes on, he says, verse 11, Dear friends, since you are immigrants and strangers in the world, I urge that you avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Live honorably among the unbelievers. Today, they defame you as if you were doing evil, but in the day when God visits to judge, they will glorify him because they have, deserved, they have observed your honorable deeds. For the sake of the Lord, submit to every human institution. Do this whether it means submitting to the emperor, which keep in mind is Nero at the time, as supreme ruler, or to governors as those sent by the emperor. They are sent to punish those doing evil and to praise those doing good. That's a preservationist institution, not a redemptive. So he goes on, verse 15, Submit to them because it's God's will that by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Do this as God's slaves, and yet also as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Have a respectful fear of God. Honor the emperor. Now again, there's a lot I could say, but here's what I will say. Both realities... The reality and politic of the kingdom of God at work in the world and the reality and politic of, in Peter's day, Rome, and our day, the USA. Both realities have some form of authority in our lives. Only one, though, only one executes consistently and powerfully God's authority and possesses an authority that lasts. And that is God's reality and politic we call the kingdom of God. See, the church is the society of that politic and is called to live in full allegiance to that politic. And so what Peter is calling the church to do is to resist the ways of coercion and violence. Because Peter knows both realities are real. Both realities have authority, but only one is deserving of the highest authority and will last, outlast all others. So both realities are real. Let's not understate the impact of lived experience in the earthly one, namely these United States. It's not wise or virtuous or even Christian to understate the realness of what's going on in our country or explain it away with language like Jesus is still Lord or God is still on the throne platitudes without understanding these confessions and what they mean in concrete, real terms in both realities and politics in the world. Here's what I mean. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during the Crusades. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during slavery. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during the Rwandan genocide. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during the Holocaust, during World War I and II, and every war that ever followed. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during the suffering of internment camps. Jesus was Lord and God was on the throne during Jim Crow. As a matter of fact, 
There has not been a moment in human history when God hasn't been on his throne. But there have been many moments in human history, beloved, when God's people and the Lord's church was silent, complicit, or guilty of not living in such a way that God's reality and politics was seen in society. There have been many moments of human history when the phrase Jesus is Lord or God is still on the throne gave permission to the church to rest comfortably in this otherworldly mindset in the midst of violence and justice. The church clinging to Bibles became so heavenly minded that it was no earthly good in the midst of these other realities and politics. See, Jesus being Lord and God being on his throne does not allow us to neglect our Holy Spirit-inspired, Holy Spirit-empowered responsibility to participate in the mission of God by embodying the politics of God's kingdom in the midst of our nation. We are summoned to live lives that demonstrate God's reign with actions, actions that reflect self-giving love, actions of gracious hospitality, actions of compassion and generosity and a proclamation of humble, truth-telling rhetoric. And we do this when we, day in and day out, choose to pay attention to how we love God above all things and live with stretched-out love for our neighbors and enemies. See, the Lord, the Lord requires that the church be the evidence, the witness, the tangible expression of his lordship at work in society. In this world given over to the reign of sin and death. In the USA. In Babylon. And the church can't do that when all its hope is placed in the wrong reality and politic. So it's not a question of which reality and politic is more real. Both are. There's a duality of our lives. These two things are happening at once. So it's not a question of which reality and politic is more real. It's only a question of which reality and politic will you and I, will we as a church give more authority to? See, there may be a duality to our lives living as Christians in society, but there is not a duality to our hope. There may be a duality to our lives living as Christians in society, but there is not a duality to our commitment to love as the most important thing. There may be a duality to our lives as Christians in society, but there is not a duality to our ethics, values, and commitment to Christ-like character and virtue. There may be a duality to our lives living in the United States of America, but there is not a duality in our citizenship and our allegiance. Concerning this idea of a duality of citizenship, Peter and Paul and other scriptures remind us again and again that we are citizens of heaven and foreigners here. Contrary to what we may have been teaching Christians for decades, there is no dual citizenship. Listen to the text, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, we look forward to a savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2.19, you are fellow citizens with God's people and you belong to God's household. Hebrews 13.14, we don't have a permanent city here. 
but rather we are looking for the city that is still to come. See, taking their cues from teachings like this, the early church leaders wrote things like this to Christians who were living under the powerful reality and politics of Rome. Clement of Alexandria, in around common era of 150 to 215, so we're talking real early here, said this, let then the Athenian follow the laws of Salon, the, the Argif those of Thronis, and the Spartan those of Lasurgis. But if you enroll yourself as one of God's people, heaven is your country, God your lawgiver. And what are the laws? You shall not kill. You shall not bear false witness. You shall love the Lord your God. And the complements of these are those laws of reason and words of sanctity which are inscribed on men's hearts. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, a couple hundred years later, during the fourth century, in a time of great social and political crisis, John Chrysostom reminded Christians this way. He said, if you are a Christian, no earthly city is yours. Of our city, the builder and maker is God. Though we may gain possession of the whole world, we are still but immigrants and foreigners in it all. We are enrolled in heaven. Our citizenship's there. Let us not, after the manner of little children, despise things that are great and admire those which are little. Not our city's greatness, but virtue of soul is our ornament and defense. So are you and I sure that we want to dehumanize our brother and sister because we think differently politically and about how earthly governments should function? Is that really something we want to do? Like, should we have disagreements, even impassioned ones, about how society should work and how the realities and politics of earthly governments should work in light of the scripture? Yes, yes, we should, because these realities are real and make human flourishing either easier or more difficult. And it's why things like poverty, immigration, race, life-giving policies or death-dealing policies are kingdom political issues, not just party political issues. The scriptures has something to say about these things. And as we've said many times, and as I've said for 10 years, in this church consistently in the second month I started preaching here, the gospel speaks to all of life and to every belief and ethic you and I hold. So we should, we should have these hard conversations. Disagreements will happen because we are all wrestling with how the reality and politics of God's kingdom gets worked out in the reality and politics of the United States of America. But how well these disagreements go will be determined by who we give greater authority to. If the Republican Party or Democratic Party or Libertarian Party gets slapped with a Christian adjective before it, or if they have been given greater authority over my life, and I'm talking practically here, not intellectually, because let's be honest, no one says that this is what we're doing consciously. This is usually a subconscious or an unconscious effort. But it's a practical thing, it's a fruits thing. If we allow these things to get greater authority over our lives, then we will disagree poorly and quite possibly miss the reality and politics of God's kingdom because we will try to fit the Bible under our political ideology. We will stamp a label on a leader 
has to be ordained and anointed by God, despite the fact the scriptures do not teach that. So believe in smaller government, cool. Believe in bigger government, cool. But submit all of that to God's government. To do that, you and I have to know the story of the scriptures, all of it, and obediently live out and wrestle with the politics of God's kingdom. Beloved, but believe in various philosophies and theories of economics. Cool. But submit all of that to the economic principles of God's kingdom. And to do that, you and I have to move beyond devotionals. We have to know the scriptures, all of it, and obediently live it out and wrestle with the politics of God's kingdom. The church. Oh, the church is to be God's beloved community that reflects the reality and politics of God in the midst of society. And when we do this, we speak truth and embody the truth we speak by practicing self-giving love and engage society through faithful presence, humble rhetoric, and if need be, courageous martyrdom. But we refuse to do so by coercive force. See, the enemy wants us to believe the opposite and will even use the Bible to do it, which is why Peter, in this same letter, and 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under God's power or authority or dominion so that he may raise you up on the last day. Throw all your anxiety onto him because he cares about you. Be clear-headed. Keep alert. Your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Do so in the knowledge that your fellow believers are enduring the same suffering throughout the world. So we need to know the story. We need to know God's kingdom reality and politic while living it out with all the tensions created by the Babylonian reality and politic. We have to make sure we don't do unhealthy Bible study and place our understanding of God's story in our understanding of the American story. We need to resist false claims earthly nations make, including our own. And we need to resist false prophecy and false teaching rooted in unfaithful end times doctrine that tries to make an earthly nation more than it is. For example, to think that somehow America is God's hope for evangelism of the world not only devalues the church universal, in places where the church is actually growing fast and thriving by the power of the Holy Spirit in places that do not allow li re uh, religious liberty, it devalues the larger Christian story in history. While we live in both realities, let's choose wisely. Let's enjoy the things that don't last, including the many gifts, rights, freedoms, and privileges our country affords with its reality and politics. But let's live for the things that do last the gifts, rights, freedoms, and privileges that God's kingdom affords. And let the gifts, rights, freedoms, and privileges of God's kingdom have priority and authority over all others. And let's never use them for ourselves. See, the task of the church cannot be limited to voting society into some form of morality, but to project the beauty of God's restorative love through King Jesus by how we live our lives in society. 
The task of the church is to move beyond party political commitments into enacting the politics of God at work in the reigning presence of Christ through actions of gracious hospitality, compassion, generosity, and justice that reflect self-giving love and promote humble, truth-telling rhetoric. And if you've been a part of this WCC family for any time, you know what that looks like in our common life and how we seek to bear witness to this in our city. So beloved, let's press on and remember Peter's closing words. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. We remember all of this at the table of the Lord in the Eucharist. Beloved, I'll see you there. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 